Let's start by reading this together. Revelation chapter 7 and starting with verse 9. John writes here and he says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Church, this is the authoritative, unchanging, inerrant, inspired word of the living God to us. His church for whom Christ died and is now alive forevermore. Amen? So let's study it together. Last week we studied the beginning of this chapter. And uh, in the first part of John chapter 7, we saw that John saw a vision of 144,000 people. And if you remember, we asked a few questions about that text but I kind of drove us to what I felt was the most significant question for us to ask, and, and that is, why was this vision of the 144,000 included in the Revelation? Why does John see this? Why does God show this to John? And I suggested to you that the purpose of it was to encourage the church, that we might know 2,000 years later, after John sees this vision, that we might know that the church is alive and well at the end, that we will not be defeated, we will not disappear, we will stand against hell, and we will be victorious. We will be triumphant, friends. And now as we come to verse 9, we see that the 144,000 are joined by a crowd that's too large to count. That 144,000 was great, but now here comes this enormous multitude. And so, as is our custom with the study, let's go back and, and kind of take it a verse or, verse or two at a time. Again, back to verse 9, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is just full of rich imagery, much of which we've already looked at. 
in this study. A lot of this should not be new to you. I don't need to go through and explain all of this imagery to you again. You get it because you've been hanging with me either here in person or online, and we've studied a lot of this. But this multitude comprises so many believers that to number them would be impossible. That's the picture that we're getting here from John. He looks out and he sees this enormous crowd and, he, and it basically he just gives up trying to figure out how many people are there. Bible scholar Robert Mount says, this new vision anticipates a glorious day, yet future when those who are to pass through the final persecution will enter the blessedness of the eternal state. The innumerable multitude includes far more than the 144,000 of the previous vision. What I want you to see in connection to the rest of Scripture is this. This is the fulfillment of prophecy from way back in the book of Genesis. This right here, this passage is the fulfillment of prophecy from way back in the book of Genesis. Where am I getting that from? There was a promise given to Abraham and his sons. God said to him these words. Uh, they're recorded for us in Genesis 13, 16, if you want to look in your own copy of God's word. But God says to Abraham, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth. This is rhetorical. I, I don't think that's possible. Uh, it's, it's kind of like, you know, can you count the sands of the seashore? Can you count the stars in the sky? Can you count the dust that's on the earth? But if you could do that, God says, that's how many your offspring will be. It's poetic. It's imagery. But here, God is saying to Abraham, you're going to have lots and lots of kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and, and on and on and on. And what we see here at the end of Revelation chapter 7 is the very fulfillment of that vision. Let me just show you one other passage. God says it differently to Abraham in Genesis 15.5. He says, look toward heaven, the number of the stars. If you're able to number them, Abraham, so shall your offspring be. So this is not only ethnic Israel that John sees here in this vision in chapter 7. Over the centuries, the gospel has gone out to all nations. And there's a beautiful diversity now in what's pictured in this multitude. This is a multitude that includes every skin color, every ethnicity, every culture, every language. Why? Because the gospel did not just stay in Israel, but went out to the Middle East and to Africa and up into Europe and up into Asia and across the pond, as the Brits say, over to the United States, right? And the gospel has spread and so what is seen here is a beautiful diversity of people and ethnicities and language. Now, again, I would ask, why does John see all of this? Why is it written and why is it sent out to the seven churches? Why has it been preserved for us over the centuries so that 2,000 years later we can all study it together? And I think the answer is, again, encouragement. It's encouragement to us, church. Hard times will come. Hard times have come to our brothers and sisters around the globe who are being persecuted today. But in the midst of those hard times, God wants us to be assured that his church will be alive and well. At the very end. We will not be defeated. We will not be dismissed. 
we will be triumphant. I think God wants us to be assured also the fulfillment of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. What Jesus told us would happen and what we ought to do, that we, having gone into the world, are to make disciples. And that is the encouragement that we have here in this passage. Now, continuing on, let's continue on with verse 11 in chapter 7. And John says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces. Picture this scene. Picture this. They fell on their faces before the throne of worship God. It's not the first time we've seen this. And they said, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. We've seen this multiple times in our study of Revelation, the angels worshiping God. God is continually and passionately worshiped in his throne room. It's a model for us to follow. And then we see this brief conversation here. It's interesting, isn't it, between John and one of the elders. And, and it helps us to understand who is in this multitude? Look at, look at verse 13. We see this little uh, dialogue that happens here. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? The multitude. That's who, that's who they're looking at. Who are these clothed in white robes? And, and from where have they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. John's thinking... I'm new to this game. This is like, I just started watching this movie. You've been a part of the cast for quite some time. You tell me. You know who they are, is what John is saying. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the emphasis on purpose from me, the great tribulation. I'll explain this in a second. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I want you to notice and in Greek, there's no wiggle room on this whatsoever. When we translate this into English, it's just kind of like it becomes this way we say things in English, the great tribulation. In Greek, the use of the definite article, if that's a new, new phrase for you, the definite ar article is translated into the English word the. But when it's used in Greek, it's for a very specific reason. It's identifying it as something. Okay, it's not just, here's what I'm saying, it's not just a great tribulation, because we have those all the time around the world and throughout history. This is the great tribulation. That is very significant that it's put that way. So I want you to notice that. Take, take, take a special note of that. This is the great tribulation. This is in reference, church, to the final series of events that's going to happen before the end. See, we're getting there now. Everything we've studied up to this point, yeah, well, well that kind of happens. Wars happen. Wars from without happen. Civil wars happen. Famines happen. Pestilence happens. And it, and it kind of happens all throughout history. But now we're getting to the part of the book where we're talking specifically about what's going to happen at the end. This is the great tribulation. This is a time that had been prophesied about both in the Old and New Testament often. I, I only have time just to show you a couple quick passages. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael. Who's Michael? He's an angel. The great prince who has charge of your people. This is, you start reading some of these Old Testament prophetic passages and it gets a bit trippy. 
But apparently there's an, an angel, an archangel, who has charge over the people of Israel. And this is what, this is who's identified here, Michael. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Bible scholars believe that this time is yet to come. This is the great tribulation that God is speaking about through the prophet Daniel. And, and if that passage isn't good enough for you to identify that there's this time of coming, that there's this time yet coming that is identified as the great tribulation, listen to the words of Christ. We know that this is in the future yet. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on his housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. These are the words of Christ. And he's saying there's a time coming in the future that will be identified as the great tribulation. And if we take heed to the words of our Lord here, it will be a time that will be so terrible. For those who experience it. And looking at Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14, what is it that identifies this group of people who have come out of this time? For this is the multitude, this is the crowd that no one can count that John sees. And what is it in verse 14, if you look at the text, that identifies them as coming out of this great tribulation? They're wearing white robes. We have seen this study before. I shouldn't need to spend too much time on this, but just as a refresher, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, their robes have been washed white. The white robe in the book of Revelation, we've seen this already, symbolizes purity. It symbolizes victory. The victory that has been secured for them through Jesus Christ. This is, church, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we talk about. They didn't make their white robe. They didn't earn their white robe. Their white robe was given to them because of the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the righteousness of Christ. Bible scholar Grant Osborne says this about it. He says, this victory does not just come from the faithful suffering of the saints, but is achieved by the blood of the Lamb. He wants to make this point because it's so important. It's not just that this group of people had been faithful unto death, though they had. But this victory came because of the one who had been faithful unto death and is alive forevermore, Jesus himself. This is the sacrifice of atonement that provided the ransom payment to free the saints from sin, Grant Osborne writes. Bible scholar Ian Paul 
I, I, I want to drill down on this point because it's so important that we get this, for this is the gospel, church. Ian Paul puts it this way. He says, the paradox of making something white by washing it in something red, which would naturally cause staining. I mean, just think about that. You're going to make something white by staining it with something red? That doesn't really make sense in the natural world, Ian Paul says. But this captures the paradox of the cross, that something apparently shameful, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree, the Old Testament says. The paradox of the cross, that something apparently shameful and unclean should bring honor and purity. It is the death of Jesus for us. And this alone, which gives us the purity, holiness, and honor signified by the wearing of white and which allows us to stand in the presence of God himself. Let's return to Revelation chapter 7, and I want to look at verse 15 with you. Revelation 7 and verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, who these people dressed in white, this innumerable uh, multitude that no one can count. They're in white robes, signifying the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They're before the throne of God, verse 15 says, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, and the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Now, this is really important whenever you're studying Scripture, especially the New Testament and especially Paul's letters. Don't forget this, what I'm about to say. Everybody awake? Look at your neighbor right now. If anybody's sleeping, give them a nudge because this is really important, okay, about Bible study, especially with Paul's letters, all right? Whenever you see the word therefore, stop and ask yourself what it's there for. Get that? It's kind of funny. And you'll You'll, you'll remember that, okay? Whenever you see that word, therefore, stop and ask what it's there for. John is saying here, because their robes have been washed white through his blood, because they have been redeemed and forgiven, because they can now claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ, therefore, something can happen. What can now happen? They can stand at the, in the very presence of God. This church is the gospel. Do not ever think that you can parade your righteousness, your goodness, the good things that you've done before God, and somehow win your way into his presence. That's religion, and religion sends people to hell. The gospel says Jesus Christ did it all for us on the cross. He gives us the white robe. He gives us his righteousness. And it's only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we dare stand before the holy, living, righteous judge. And so that's what we're seeing here. They're now able to stand before the throne of God. But they're not just standing there passively right? They're not on Facebook right now checking their status or anything of the like. What are they doing? They're serving Jesus. Let's unpack that word just a little bit. It's the Greek word latruo. Uh, most of your translations probably say serving, and that's very right. It's very accurate, but I don't want you to miss this nuance. Latruo can also be very appropriately translated worship. Service is worship. Worship is service. These, these two are interchangeable when we're talking about our acts of service to God. We ought to serve with an attitude and a spirit of worship, and we ought to worship in our service. These are all true. And so the followers of Christ here will be a royal priesthood, and God is going to shelter them with his 
presence. This idea in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, is what's known as the Shekinah glory. And you've, you've probably heard that phrase before. Shekinah is taken from the Hebrew word shekan, and shekan literally is translated to dwell. And so it's being in the presence of. Church, it has been God's desire to dwell with us from the moment that he created us. We are the problem. We get in the way of that. It's our sin that creates distance between us and God. In the book of Exodus, we see this actually throughout the Old Testament, but in the book of Exodus, God says, and let them make me, he's talking about Israel here, but let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And, and again, if you look at some of those other passages on the screen, Exodus 29, 45 says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. This is God's desire. God wants to be with us because he loves us. He wants to have intimate relationship with us. What got in the way of that was our own sinfulness. Later in the Old Testament, through the prophet Zechariah, God says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. God loves his people. God wants to be with his people. And then in the New Testament, we see that there's an outcome to us now because of Christ being able to come into the presence of God. We experience the true Shekinah glory. Moses had a sunburn really bad. That was his Shekinah glory. But we experience the true Shekinah glory. And this is what Paul writes here in this next passage to the Corinthians. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. It's beautiful. And we all, with unveiled face, he's, he's given, Paul's given an illusion here that the people he was writing to would have immediately understood, oh, he's talking about Moses and being in the presence of God. And he says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, what? We're being transformed. We're being changed. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When you became a Christian, you came in. God looked at you, and he took away your sins, and you were justified. But God is not going to leave you in that state, friend. He's going to keep transforming you from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Well, let's go back to Revelation 7. I want to wrap this up. We're, we also see here that another outcome of God's presence among his people is protection and provision. And this is a, just a beautiful, beautiful ending to this passage. God provides and God protects. His people will never again have cause for fear. The people of God in this moment, this enormous multitude that John sees, will never have cause again for fear. They will never again experience harm. Also, all of the suffering that they have endured will be removed. Think of, of the, the way it's worded here in this verse. Hunger and thirst, lack of shelter. I mean, we can under, this helps us to understand why Jesus said, I've come to preach good news to the poor. Because if you're poor, you worry about these things. What you're going to eat, where you're going to live. And Jesus said, I've come to preach good news to the poor. What's the good news? There's going to come a day if you enter into my kingdom where you're never going to have to worry about that again. Hunger, thirst, shelter, 
All of these needs will be met by God, and the deepest longing of our souls will be satisfied. Last verse, verse 17. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. That's a beautiful image in Scripture I'll actually talk about next week. Springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen and amen. This is our future, church. This is our future. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, this is your future. Now, how should we apply this this morning? I just have a few suggested points of application I'll go through quickly. First of all, we see this so clearly in this text. The gospel's for all people. The gospel is for all. The Apostle Paul, I've got a couple passages on the screen there for you. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul writes and he says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul also writes to the Galatians, you see uh, chapter 3, verse 28 there, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's the point? Gentiles, you and me, we're all grafted into spiritual Israel now. We have been invited to the party, praise God. Gentiles are welcome to come. We are now the people of God. This was, I want to make a point about this though, this was a hard pill for the Jewish people to swallow. That Gentiles were invited to the party. They heard these words from Paul and here in Revelation, and I'm sure that all of these assemblies of Jews around Asia Minor heard this for the first time about this enormous multitude of people from all ethnicities and all skin colors and all languages, and it was a hard pill for them to choke down. Here is my challenge to you. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that the gospel is for all people, even for those that we might not expect to come. This was Jonah's issue, right, if you remember his story. I don't have time to get into that, but if you need a refresher course on Jonah, go back and read the book. This was Jonah's issue. What, you mean those Assyrians, the Ninevites? They can't come. They can't repent. God, just burn them up. Just destroy them. Listen, friends, we have no right to decide who receives the good news and so if we are following Christ, we must rise above our cultural prejudices. We must. If you are a Christ follower, this is not optional for your spiritual formation. It's not optional for your spiritual growth. If you claim to follow Christ and you still tell racist jokes, you make ethnic slurs, you say things like that, you are not honoring Christ with that. You are sinning, and you must repent, or you will not grow in your faith. I don't know how much more clearly I could say that, but we need to understand and we need to grow above those cultural pre prejudices. Don't live your life weighed down by that sin. And please don't go to heaven, brothers and sisters, expecting to see only white people. You're going to be very disappointed. I don't know how else to put it. 
Don't go there thinking you're only going to see white people. You will be surrounded by brothers and sisters from the Middle East and from Africa and from Asia and from Europe, Australia, and South America, and there'll even be some of us here from North America. But you're going to be surrounded by this beautiful diversity, array of color. This has been God's plan from the beginning, and it will be done. So you better get used to the idea right now. The second point of application that we need to make is that only, the only way to stand before God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the only way that we can stand. And I say it to you one more time because we need to know that, that only the righteousness of Jesus Christ on that day of judgment will serve in our defense. Amen? And so if you're trusting in religion, if you're trusting in religion, the answer is, is the same as if you were still a racist Christian. You need to repent in that case, and you need to repent if you're trusting in religion because it won't save you. If somehow if you have this idea that your church attendance and, and being a good person and doing a Bible study every day and things of that nature is what you have to do to earn your way into heaven, it's a fool's errand. It will let you down. It will crumble. Instead, embrace the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that says Jesus did it all. There's a great verse there. Uh, for you to, to meditate on Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him, in him in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And this is beautiful because what this tells me is that when I still do struggle, and we all have different struggles, but when I still struggle with my sin, the forgiveness of Christ is there. I'm not trusting in my ability to something right. I'm trusting in what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. Amen, church? That's what we need to trust in because that's the only thing that will provide for our salvation. The third and final uh, takeaway I want to give you this morning from this passage is that the deepest longing of our souls will one day be satisfied. I love what you see there, Matthew 5, 6, and there's a couple other verses, but Matthew 5, 6 is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. This is one of the Beatitudes. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think, again, we see the fulfillment of it in Revelation chapter 7. The souls of the righteous will be satisfied completely. They're not going to hunger anymore. They're not going to thirst anymore. They're not going to have longing for shelter. Every hurt, every harm is going to be taken away and undone and and everything that's broken in our lives will be restored. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus explains to us just how our souls will be satisfied. John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How will our souls be satisfied? In Christ himself. It'll be Jesus himself that's our true satisfaction. There's going to be many, many wonderful things about heaven. But the greatest thing about heaven, church, will be Jesus. He will completely satisfy us in every way. St. Augustine uh, had resisted becoming a Christian for many years when he was a young man. This, this is a guy who grew up in northern Africa, uh, so smart. Wicked smart, as the young people would say. Well, actually, maybe that was 10 years ago. My slang is dated. But anyways, really smart guy. 
really smart guy. And he had resisted the gospel, even though he was starting to believe it was true. But he was a young man, and he wanted to, you know, sow his wild oats, as they said back in the 60s and 70s and, and all that. And he, so he kept God at arm's length. And finally, our unrelenting God... And that's what he is. An unrelenting God uh, got through to Augustine, and Augustine received the gospel, and he realized this very truth. This is the way that uh, St. Augustine put it. He said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Amen? Uh, haven't you seen that to be true? God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Blaise Pascal, he was a, another philosopher a few centuries after Augustine, and he put it this way. He said that everybody has a God-shaped void in their life, and only God can fill it. It's like that game we all played when we were kids, uh, not the kids in the room. You guys didn't, probably didn't play this. But those of us who are a little more chronologically mature, do you remember that game where it was like this ball thing and, and you had to stick the shapes into the holes? Go like this if you remember the game. I was the only one who had this as a kid. Okay, Judy did. Okay, a couple others. And, and I'll tell you, that toy company, they did something really mean. You could only stick the right shape into the right hole. You couldn't, like, you couldn't get the triangle in the, in the circle. You couldn't get the circle in the square. You couldn't get the square in the rectangle. Like, you had to have the right shape for the right hole. That's what Blaise Pascal was saying. We all, all people, whether we want to admit it or not, whether your friends and neighbors and family members who have yet to receive the gospel want to admit it or not, all of us have a God-shaped hole, a God-shaped void in our life that only Jesus can fill, only Christ. Our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Worship team, would you join me up here and we'll sing. Jesus, I just want to thank you this morning for the cross. We want to praise you together. We want to worship you, Lord, for who you are and for all that you've done for us. God, we come together as, as a group. My, my hope, my prayer is that all of us in this room can say that your righteousness is our only defense. It will be the only thing that we say back to you, Lord, when we stand before the righteous judge. I am here because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I am here because of what Christ did for me on the cross. And so, Lord, my prayer for anybody here in this room who has yet to receive the gospel, or if there's even one person here in this room today who has yet to trust in you, they don't need to walk this aisle. They can. They don't need to talk to me. I would love them to talk to me. But God, in, in the quietness of their own heart right now, might they reach out to you in faith, asking you to save them, putting their trust in you alone and in what you did for them on the cross. If that's you today, friend, I just pray to him right now. Jesus, save me. I trust in you. 
I trust in what you did for me on the cross, and I need your righteousness before I face God. I give you my life, Lord, and I want to follow you from this day on. Jesus, only you satisfy our souls. Only you satisfy our souls, Lord. We long for that day when our souls will be completely and utterly satisfied in you. We long for the day, Lord, where we will not fall into temptation, where we won't be tempted to live for other things, for things that don't matter, for things that don't last. We know that this is true because we've had times in our lives where we've been growing spiritually, we've been close to you, and we know that that gives us a greater degree of satisfaction than anything this world has to offer. But Lord, one day we will stand before you without sin, without temptation, and our souls will be completely satisfied in you, Lord. We look forward to that day. And Jesus, we ask you for more grace this morning. You've given us so much grace, Lord, but we need more. Change the way that we think. Bend us, Lord. Shape us, Lord. When necessary, Jesus, break us. Conform us into your image. May we grow more and more to be like you, thinking like you, speaking like you, loving like you, serving like you. And may we know without a shadow of a doubt that the gospel is for all people. And so may we be quick to love without prejudice. Maybe may we be quick to serve others. And may we be quick to share with them the hope that we have in you. 